welcome to the Quarter to Three Games podcast for, um, April 20-some-odd, 2015. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is absolutely not Magic the Gathering. So, uh, we're gonna talk CCGs here, uh... I'm delighted to speak with our guest who has made not a CCG, but a game about CCGs. Uh, but before we get to that, let me first uh, briefly establish my bona fides with you. Back in the 90s, this must have been 93, 94, something like that, I was a, a counselor at a summer camp. And... Uh, one of the things I love about uh, being a counselor in that environment is uh, looking for the kid who is kind of in the situation I would have been back when I was that age. The slightly nerdy one, a little shy, uh, and kind of reaching out to that kid. And uh, and I, I distinctly remember a fella, I think his name was Nicholas, um, who was was kind of one of the dorks of the, the group. Uh not, not, you know, bullied or beleaguered or a sad sack or anything like that, but I thought, you know, that Nicholas kid, he's, he's like a nerdy guy. That's totally me when I was his age. And I remember Nicholas one day coming up to me at lunch, uh, and saying, hey, do you know this card game Magic? And I didn't know Magic, so I, and I assumed from the name that it was something you play with a deck of cards, uh, you know, like Hearts or Crazy Eights or Slapjack or something like that. Uh, and so I, I told him I didn't know it, and uh, would he show it to me? And sure enough, he pulled out a pack of cards that didn't look anything like the cards I was used to. They had little uh, fantasy drawings on them, like, you know, an uh, angel and a, and a goblin and a vampire and a sorcerer and weird stuff like that. And they had text with rules on them and stuff like that. Uh, and And so Nicholas showed me... Magic the Gathering. And within the week, I had gone to my friendly local game store and bought a starter deck for Magic the Gathering. Uh, my career with Magic was, I think, short-lived. I, I must have bought a few booster packs, because I, I had a collection at one point. I don't think I had any rares or anything fancy like that. And I was never... You know, my deck building was strictly casual. I played it a few times with some friends. Uh, I remember even we, uh, we would... Because uh, when Magic first came out, when you would uh, bring out your deck that you were going to play with, you would take one of the cards out and set it aside. Each player would, for, from his or her deck. And these two cards that were set aside, those were the prizes. You know, you would lose a card from your deck when you lost a game. And you would win someone else's card. So for a while I was doing that with uh, with my friends. And we would actually write on the card, like our name, or some disparaging comment about the other guy who won the card. and uh, So a lot of our cards didn't have much as far as aftermarket value, because we it didn't occur to us that, hey, you would collect these and sell them. These were our pieces to play with as we wanted. Uh, so uh, I never was a serious buyer or a collector of Magic the Gathering. Uh, but shortly thereafter, and also I should say, part of my problem with Magic, and this is I've maintained this over the years. I don't think Magic is a very good game. It's a simple game. Um, some might describe it as elegant or streamlined, but I, I think it's just simple. Uh, you know, Magic is always about which will prevail. 
my wall or your assault, and vice versa, your wall and my assault. And I, so what happened was I started. I did sample some other CCGs, and those other CCGs made me considerably less interested in magic, as magic enjoyed continued popularity.、Um, so a few years after magic, a CCG came out called、uh, Jihad. And I know what you might be thinking: not that kind of jihad.、Uh, this was also created by Richard Garfield, the, the guy who made Magic, and the theme was clans of vampires fighting each other.、Uh, and a couple of things made jihad special. And and to this day, actually, if jihad were, if I knew other people who played, I would still be playing this game. I still have my cards; they're right there. I'm pointing at them right now. They're sitting right across the room.、Uh, I've been clearing out the closet lately. I'm, I'm getting rid of some board games to make room for new ones, and I pulled out the old Jihad cards and meant to go through them、uh, just out of nostalgia. So they're sitting right there now. I still have them to this day.、Uh, whereas I don't own a Magic card anymore. I've long since gotten rid of any Magic cards I had.、Uh, so a couple of things made Jihad special. One of the things that made it special was it wasn't just a two-player head-to-head game. Jihad required. And this is part of why it's hard to find people to play jihad. By the way, required at least three three players, and supported up to actually I don't know how many.、Uh, I guess because of the dynamic, as many as you wanted. But、uh, the idea was the player to your right was attacking you, whereas you were attacking the player to your left. I might have that backwards.、Uh, but at any rate, there was only one person you could attack, and one person by whom you could be attacked.、Um, So what that meant was you couldn't go all out after the guy to your left because you also had to have defenses and defend yourself from the guy to your right.、Uh, the guy across the table, he didn't matter one whit, unless he took out the guy on your right, in which case now he was breathing down your neck. So it was kind of this circle of a、uh, predator and prey. I wonder it might have actually used those terms, by the way, to, to, descri- to describe the player relationships: predator and prey.、Uh, And also, what made it special, unlike magic, which just uses the vocabulary basically of invader and wall,、uh, jihad had several ways to interact with, or undermine, or affect, or attack your victim.、Um, you could just do a straight-out、uh, street fighting attack. You know, your vampires fight his vampires. You could do a stealth attack called a bleed, where you're just trying to bleed away his hit points.、Um, And、I think hit points were called blood.、Um, there were、uh, there were political attacks which involved votes that I think went around the table,、um, and、uh, it, it was just there were, there were many more systems at work in jihad that made it interesting and multifaceted,、uh, and of course gave you lots of options for building decks and for different strategies. And so a few years after、uh, it was released, jihad. Was renamed, as you might imagine, that, that name wasn't going to float for very long,、uh, as、uh, "Vampire: The Eternal Struggle." How's that for being on the nose?、Uh, so that was my first、uh, real dalliance with the CCG. Shortly thereafter, there was a Star Wars collectible card game.、Uh, not not anything you're thinking of now.、Uh, Fantasy Flight has the Star Wars license now. I think they've released an LCG, a living card game.、Uh, This one was published and created by a company called Decipher. 
and it went back to the magic format of two players playing head-to-head. One would be light side, one would be dark side. Uh, each side had completely different cards, uh, completely different decks. You would build a light side deck and a dark side deck. Uh, and there were some, uh, some unique systems at play in the Star Wars CCG that I really liked a lot. To this day, actually, I think I would still like to play that game. And, and again, I still have my cards for that one. Uh, they're right over there with the Jihad cards. Uh, so your deck of cards, your physical number of cards was basically your hit points in, in, in the Star Wars CCG. You know, the, as you, as you took damage, so to speak, you would lose cards out of your deck. Your deck would get smaller and smaller. Uh, one of the advantages of this, however, was that a lot of effects would require a random number. And rather than rolling a die, you would do what's called a destiny draw. Uh, and you would just take the top card of your deck and you would look at it. And regardless of the card's effect, there were, you know, there were characters and equipment and locations and droids and aliens. And, man, I'm psyching myself into wanting to replay the Star Wars CCG. Uh, but regardless of what the card was, it would have a number in the corner, um, from zero to seven, I believe. And that would be the number you drew for combat or whatever. Uh, and then that card would be put off to the discard pile. You would just cycle the card as well. So they played with this a couple of ways. Uh, the first way was, as your deck got smaller, it got easier to keep track of where the high numbers were. Uh, and they almost encouraged, not encouraged, I mean, they, you were allowed to count cards. Um, so, and that, by the way, always infuriated me. I'm terrible at counting cards. I'm terrible at doing math while I'm trying to play a game. Uh, and I would constantly booger it up. Um, but somebody who was good at counting cards would they would know where that seven was in their deck and they would time combat just perfect with the destiny draw of seven um and then furthermore what it did was it it allowed them to do some balancing things in that the really powerful badass characters would have really no, low destiny draw numbers um and some of the cards that might be less useful or maybe only useful in a specific situations those would be the sevens you know, you would want to make sure to seed your deck with with some really high numbers. Um, so that added a twist to deck building. Uh, Star Wars was a much more of a... Uh, it was more like a board game in that locations that came out would be put on the center of the table. And you and the other player would then fight over these locations. Um, so there was very much a territory control element there. Uh, and the locations were planet-side-based, uh, planet-side stuff, and there was space-based stuff as well. So there might be an entire planet, and there would be sites on the planet. So there was a, a nice divide between uh, space and, and, and planet-side stuff. Uh, and you could have a whole deck that was just space or just planet-side things. I remember having a, an Imperial Star Destroyer deck uh, that had no ground forces whatsoever. It was all about trying to control from space... Uh, certain key planets. Um, so what that could mean is that you could play past each other with certain decks, but that that, that would happen. That was just part of the, the system. But uh, the Star Wars game was also a, a, a loss of innocence for me in that uh, one of the pitfalls of a CCG is that over time, to sell more cards... There, there's going to be a necessary power curve. You know, they're going to introduce more powerful cards and later expansions, and later cards might invalidate earlier cards, and that happened very quickly with the Star Wars game. Um, 
you could see the direction it was headed within an expansion or two. And the the friends with whom I played, some of them would go off and get some of the later expansions, and I just wanted no part of that. So I kind of fell away from the Star Wars game, unfortunately. Uh, but to this day, I, I you know still have my cards. I have an original Vader. I'm sure that's probably worth. Upwards of two or three dollars, maybe on eBay. Who who knows? Uh, uh, by the way, that the Star Wars game also was the first time that uh, you, you know you buy a starter pack, it'd be like ten dollars, and you buy booster packs for two, three dollars, whatever. They would have ten, fifteen cards in them, and that's how you build your collection. Uh, so the people who are really serious about this would actually buy boxes of booster packs. You know, rather than just go into the local game store and buying a couple of boxes, they would order online, presumably at wholesale prices, but it probably wasn't quite that easy, uh, a box of a 100 booster packs, and these are the same boxes that the retail stores are ordering. So the first time I actually did this, I split the cost with a friend. We ordered a box of Star Wars booster packs. Um, and I'll never forget going through uh, and... You know, I would open a pack and show my friend what I got, then he would open his pack, then I would open my pack. And at one point, we said, okay, tell you what, you pick the next pack I'm going to open, and then I'll pick the one for you. And at one point, he picked a pack for me, and he handed it to me, and I opened it, and holy cats, it was an Obi-Wan. And he was crestfallen that that was the pack that he had pulled out of the box, and that he should have opened it. And so he put the kibosh in this idea of picking packs out for each other, and we picked our own. Uh, But that was... uh, that was my second um, CCG, and once it started to fall apart with the later expansions and I got out of it, that was pretty much it for me and CCGs for quite some time. Now, along came LCGs, which are living card games, which is just a way of kind of tempering the business model of a CCG. Uh, you know, I love Netrunner, which was also a game that came out in the 90s. It was recently acquired by not recently, I guess within a few years ago. It was acquired by Fantasy Flight. Um, they rejiggered some of the rules, but kept the basic premise up. Um, and Netrunner's an LCG, but really it's a CCG. It's just rather than buying them in little packs, little expansion packs, uh, you buy larger expansion packs. Um, and I also think a lot of a lot of defenders of Netrunner will say, no, there's no power curve. It's it's doing great, but I, I do not believe that. Uh, so I, I stopped buying Netrunners uh, Netrunner cards after I think about two or three expansions. So I can't say for sure, but uh, you know I admire the uh, design of Netrunner. Netrunner's a, a brilliant game. Again, it's a two-player head-to-head game, but there are a lot of different systems at work. Um, unlike the Star Wars game, there's extreme asymmetry at work in Netrunner, and I love that about it. Uh, so I have recently kind of gotten back into a CCG with something called Dice Masters. Um, Dice Masters is a deck builder, but rather than playing it with cards, you play it with dice. Uh, there's, so it's got the chaos of drawing cards, the chaos of rolling dice, uh, and it is a collectible thing. You buy a starter set, then you buy a booster pack, which has two dice in it. Uh, and I wouldn't have gotten into this, except the, the publishers at WizKids were kind enough to send me a review copy of the starter kit for their most recent Dice Masters release. So Dice Masters, there was originally a game called Quarriors, and they slapped onto it the Yu-Gi-Oh! license uh, and released it as Dice Masters to make it a collectible thing. Uh, 
They also later uh, gave it the uh, Marvel license. Um, and recently they've given it the Dungeons & Dragons license. And that was a starter pack that was sent to me. I can't deny that it appealed to my nostalgia from playing Dungeons & Dragons as a kid. Uh, you know, I couldn't care less about Yu-Gi-Oh! I couldn't tell you a thing about it. Um, the, the Marvel license, I'm not really interested in a game where you have all these iterations of Captain America... And then furthermore, you have multiple Captain America dice out fighting each other. I, the Marvel license makes no sense in the context of Dice Masters. Uh, but the Dungeons and Dragons thing, that makes perfect sense. You know, I can have multiple owl bears and carrion crawlers and gelatinous cubes and elf wizards and dwarf clerics. There, there's, there's no narrative dissonance there. Um, silly as it may be, I, I quite enjoy, uh, Dice Masters. And I did buy, Right off the bat, uh, I went ahead and bought a box of, uh, what is it, eight, no, uh, 90 booster packs for Dice Masters. Yep, 90. Each one has two dice in it. So I am now the proud owner of over 200, when you count the starter set, and the 180 that came in the, all those booster packs. I'm now the proud owner of over 200 Dice Masters dice. So, uh, I guess the point is, I, I might be back into CCGs, but with dice instead of cards? Uh, I don't know. Um, but what I've recently found, and what I would now like to talk to you about, is a board game about, not CCGs, but about being someone who plays CCGs. At least that's how it's represented by the fellow who made it. The game is called Millennium Blades which is the name of the fictional CCG that the game is about. Uh, it was created by D. Brad Talton Jr. That's his name. It's a great name for an oil magnate, don't you think? Uh, and his company, who's publishing it, is Level 99 Games. Millennium Blades is currently uh, in the middle of its Kickstarter. I would encourage you to check it out there. Uh, but I was lucky enough to receive a prototype of it. Uh, the, the, the game is, as far as the actual gameplay, uh, I know they might, there might still be some changes, but it's, it's complete, feature complete gameplay. Uh, the game will ship with a whole bunch of cards, uh, and there are only about half of them included in the prototype I got. Um, but because it's a game where anytime you sit down to play, you don't use all the cards, you, you choose which sets you're going to use, uh, that doesn't affect how it plays. So to briefly give you a, a sense for what this is like, um, when you sit down to play Millennium Blades, you choose which sets you're going to use, and the sets represent uh, the ideas, uh, different expansions or add-ons. Um, Millennium Blades itself, the basic motif is kind of um, anime, I, I think, but then the expansions are themes like like the, the like westerns and Gundam robots or horror or uh, there's one obviously inspired by James Bond and Legend of Zelda. Um, there's uh, there there's uh, a, a a mysterious Pandora's box one. It's all these like evil boxes and and stuff and like like jars and chests uh, that have ghosts in them and things. Uh, and each set, as well as having a theme, tends to have distinct mechanics. Um, so what you do when you play is you shuffle together the sets you're going to use into a, a big store. 
and players start with a, a basic starter set of like eight, nine cards. Um, and then over the course of the game, they get new cards that represent the increasing collection of a CCG player. Now, the actual gameplay goes through two alternating phases. The first phase is your deck building phase. You have your starter set, and then you dealt extra cards from the store. Um, now, I should point out here that a lot of this is abstracted, whereas a card represents a rare single uh, that would power a deck. You know, all those commons and uncommons, the, the chaff that goes into deck building, um, the, the sinew, if you will, the, the skeletal structure, all that is abstracted out of the game. Um, so you're basically dealing with a, a smaller number of cards that represent the, the linchpin you know, of your strategy in a, in a deck builder. Um, so during the deck building phase, you are building a deck to use in the tournament. That's the other phase that happens. There's a deck building phase, a tournament phase, and then that happens three times, after which whoever has the most points uh, wins. Uh, so this deck that you're creating only consists of eight cards. Now, it's a difficult decision to make which eight cards, but it's much easier than building a deck of, say, 60 cards. So in this time deck building phase, did I mention it's timed? Because it is. Uh, you have to figure out which eight cards you're going to use in the tournament. Uh, and by the way, of those eight cards, even then, you're only going to play six of them in the tournament. Two of them will still be in your hand. Uh, what you're also doing with your collection is you can cash some of those in for immediate victory points. And you have to assemble a sort of a poker hand of sequential cards um, that you will cash in for victory points. You can also buy cards. You can sell some of your cards. You can trade cards with other players. Um, and after the time is up, and you've built your deck, you've got new cards and looked at them, you then have the tournament phase. And this is very simply, uh, in, around the table, one at a time, each player plays one card. <clears throat> the card is generally going to be some scoring mechanism. Um, and what you've done, by the way, when you've built a deck, is you've created a, a scoring puzzle, kind of. Um, however, some of the cards can interfere with other players' scoring puzzles. So you're never quite sure. You're not going to be able to just pick six cards and play them in an uninterrupted sequence and get points. The odds are some of the other players might try to mess with you. Uh, so you go around. You each take turns playing a card. Once you've all played six cards, the tournament is over. Whoever won gets the most points. Second place gets the second most points, and so on down the line. And you go into the next deck-building phase. Oh, and the winner of the tournament, by the way, gets a few extra powerful cards that represent his, his prize. And so the idea is you are playing a board game, technically a card game, but you know it's got player mats and uh, you know it's a tabletop game, board game, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you're playing a board game about a CCG rather than a CCG itself, because you are compressing into you know the two hours of playing time uh, the idea of someone beginning with a collection of cards, beginning with a small group of cards, and then growing his or her collection. And then using that collection in various ways, such as cashing it in for victory points, uh, or building decks, or trading things away, or selling some of the cards. Uh, but most of the points come from playing the tournaments. So this game was made by uh, 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 Brad Talton, who we are now going to speak with.
so much for uh, joining me today. Uh, as I, I mentioned a little bit earlier to you, I had a very interesting game last night of of Millennium Blades. You guys were kind enough to send me uh, a prototype version of it. Uh, and now, now I guess I should say the prototype version that was sent to us. Uh, this this is mostly the final gameplay, but as far as content, we're, we're probably only seeing what like two thirds or half of the cards that would be included. You see, you see about a half of the cards that are included in the game, and um, we are, and we're still rebalancing a lot of those cards for for playability and for uh, for conciseness. Because um, one of the big things about this game is that there's a there's a lot of cards and there's a lot of information to process, and making that really accessible to players is something that we're doing, spending a lot of our playtesting time on. So, so you're seeing kind of the final gameplay, but not necessarily the uh, the final versions of all the cards sure. in, in the game that you played. So what what strikes me looking over these cards, and I've also recently been exposed to Argent, which is another game from from your company. There, uh, it, it it seems like a game where each time you play, you're only going to see a, a small portion of what's actually in the box. Like when I sit down to play a game of Argent or Millennium Blades, uh, I'm only going to see some of the Millennium Blade cards. Uh, in Argent, I'm only going to see a few of the rooms. Uh, only a couple of the spells will come into play. Um, in a way, it seems, and I, I can't speak to BattleCon and Pixel Tactics, uh, but it, would it be fair to say that part of the design approach there at Level 99 is give us a box with a lot of stuff and only let us play with a few of the pieces at, in, in any, any given game? Yeah, it's it's certainly true, and um, and it stems a lot from my uh, general philosophy of gaming um, that uh, that gameplay really only exists between the uh, between the moment when you learn the game and the moment when you solve the game, and so giving players a box where they they're unable to solve the game, forcing you to re to refigure um, your strategy and the possibilities each time you play. Um, Giving giving players that uh, makes a game is what gives a game longevity, mm-hmm. and so it's our philosophy with with a lot of our stuff. Like with BattleCon, that comes with thirty characters in the box, and you only play two of them at a time. So you're going to have to play hundreds of games to see every matchup and all the interactions that are available to players. Argent's the same way. You build a different university each time, and there's millions of different combinations that you could come up with. Not to mention that you'll have different spells every game that are going to change the kind of engine you have to build and the strategy you have to use. And uh, even more than that, too, with Millennium Blades, you only see a subset of these card sets. And of the cards that are in the pool, you're only going to see a small handful. So you're going to have a lot of different interactions. You're going to have to build a different deck each game um, to try and capitalize on what you on what you have available to you. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you this then in uh, what, what will sound like a confrontational way, not because I feel this way, but because I want to see how you respond. Um I, I did play Millennium Blade last night with a, a couple of friends, uh, and one of whom, uh, I think he, he was partly frustrated because he didn't do very well, but it was also a little overwhelming for him. And one of his observations was uh, that what you're doing in Millennium Blades – and again, this isn't how I feel. I just want to see how you respond. Uh, what you are doing in Millennium Blades is you are taking the the sensation, the experience of playing a CCG – you know, a collectible card game where you collect your cards over over many days and you, you pour over a deck and, and you spend a lot of time looking at all the cards and assembling a deck and learning how they the, the different sets interact with each other. Uh, and you're trying to compress this uh, 
down into one, you know, two, two and a half hour experience. Um, you're basically taking something that would normally take up days of someone's life and be spread out over weeks and weeks, and you're trying to, to compress it into two and a half hours. Um, and according to my friend, it was too overwhelming for him. Uh, I disagree with that, and we'll come back to that in a second. But how would you respond to my friend who was overwhelmed by all of these cards and felt like you know, it was a CCG after all? Because I did lead with one of your selling points, which is uh, Millennium Blades is not a CCG. It's about the experience of being a CCG player. I led with that, and then afterwards he was like, no, it was a CCG. Uh, and he kind of felt like I'd, I'd pulled a bait and switch on him. Uh, how would you respond to that? Well, I'd say that if um, if the idea of playing a CCG turns you off, you're probably not uh, not in the right place with Millennium Blades because, um, you know, like any simulation, it's meant to evoke the feeling of the thing it simulates. Um, as far as overwhelming, um, I don't know. You know, um, a simulation is good if it can capture kind of the the key aspects of a thing. Um, if we take a game like Sid Meier's Civilization or uh, Sim City or you know those style of games. Um, you know, I certainly, I certainly think that those games are much more complex than Millennium Blades. So, um, so I don't know if that's, uh, if that's a, I believe that's probably a caveat of the player himself not appreciating the, the, the CCG style of gameplay. Um, so, so that would be, that would be my answer. I'd say if you like CCGs, then Millennium Blades will deliver that experience to you in a compressed time, like a simulation should. Um, if you don't like CCGs, you're probably not going to enjoy Millennium Blades. And, and right I would there. also say, and this is what what I sort of talked to my friend about, uh, it's not a CCG in that when you do play a CCG, like all of those cards that come with Millennium Blades, which will ultimately be something like 600 cards, uh, if it were a CCG, I would have all 600 of those cards at the, at the, off, at the beginning, and I would build a deck out of that. Um, but what you do when you sit down to play Millennium Feeds is there's a very gradual, deliberate drip feed of how many of those cards you can play with at any given time. You know, first you start with your starter pack, and then after each tournament, you are fed a, a booster pack, quote-unquote, which is a certain number of cards, uh, to then fold into the starter pack. Um, yeah, and that was um, one of the one of the key uh, challenges of this, of this project is kind of the, uh, the, um, the pacing of information. You know, giving players enough that they can make a, a solid deck um, but not giving players too much that they become overwhelmed. And this was a big challenge with Pixel Tactics too, because you have these cards that each have five different effects, and making sure that players can, you know, can uh, can kind of process all the information that's coming in at a reasonable pace is um, is part of the design challenge. And you know, we approach it that way, and we figure out how to structure the cards and how to structure the game and the rules so that um, everything's as clear and understandable as possible. And, and I, you know, okay. with the with the early version of Millennium Blades that you tried out. Um, Things like that are still are still in the works, um, and they'll be improved on in the final. But uh, you know, figuring out exactly how to pace that uh, that uh, you know that flow of information uh, is uh, is something that's that's been really uh, that's been a major focus of our testing. And I will say to to you guys' credit, uh, one of the things that also helps that is that the actual gameplay, the the, the gameplay rules, the uh, the verbs, if you will, that you're using to interact with each other, um, there's a very small set of them. And you're not constantly introducing new mechanics with more powerful cards or with later cards. Um, like once you learn the basic verbs of, uh, 
you know, a uh, 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 play. Um, actually, you're, you're changing some of the actual physical names or the, the yeah, names play, of what you do. Flip, um, right. and, uh, and action and score. score. Right, right, exactly. Uh, and then on top of that, clash, which is an important verb. But basically, those five verbs that we've just used, every card is only going to interact in those ways for the most part. Um, so whether it's a basic card in your starter deck or whether it's something in a gold promo pack that's a quote-unquote endgame card, um, you're still using the same basic interactions. Um, so uh, yeah. uh, what, one of the things that you're doing uh, then to play around with these different verbs and to distinguish cards from each other is you have this idea of sets. Um, instead of traditional rarities, there are kind of uh, cost groupings, and within each cost grouping, there are themed sets. Um, and for instance, in the prototype that, that I've uh, that I've used here, there's like a, a, a Legend of Zelda spoof set. Uh, there's a, like Kung Fu movie set. There's a James Bond set. Uh, there's classic like Gundam robots set. Uh, I, I can't help but think you guys had a great time coming up with and playing around with the different dynamics that will work within each set, right? Like that must have been uh, a, a hugely enjoyable part of the design process. It's been a lot of fun, both from the, the mechanical side of figuring out, you know, the um, the key mechanic of these sets, because each one sort of has its own um, mechanical focus. Like the robots really care about what character you play right after them, basically who gets to ride in the robot. Or the um, the uh, the James Bond set, they all sort of uh, attack uh, or watch your opponents to see what they play. And if they play the wrong kind of card, then the, those cards um, flip over and attack them automatically. So you have uh, you have different mechanics in play. And coming up with the mechanics to match the the different themes was a lot of fun. But coming up with the themes as well um, was a huge uh, was a really enjoying really enjoyable in the design. And the artist Fabio Fontes has had a ton of fun building these cards. Were there any sets that uh, you either had to let go by the wayside? Actually, is that finalized at this point? So your your Kickstarter is in process right now. Mm-hmm. Um, the game. Uh, when is the game scheduled to deliver? We're we've we've said January of next year, and um, because we always we well we always put our base game time on these kickstarters, and then we add stretch goals, and then it gets way our timeline gets way off whack. So we we put something really far out this time, so that it can include all of our stretch goals and such. And we're going to try and deliver early on this one. So um, so so rather than you know promise promise early and deliver late, we're going to try and promise late and deliver early for Great. this project. So then I guess what what that makes me wonder is, are the sets finalized at this point? Of course, some of those might be part of stretch goals, but uh, were there sets – like do you have in your head, these are the sets that are going in the box, period? Or is that kind of open-ended at this point? For the base box, that's all set. And for the expansion box, which we, we will do if we hit um, our 100K stretch goal, um, that box still has a few sets that we're deciding on the exact contents of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and can you describe for uh, the, the listeners some of your favorite sets? Like when you, because I imagine that would be part of the experience as well of sitting down to play. Um, is this game? I want to try to get cards from this set, or, or, or maybe you just prefer. Like when I played last night, I used a basic starter set that had dark cards. Um, normally, the goal of the game is not to get your cards flipped so that you can score them. The goal of the dark cards that I was playing with was to to have them flipped over. Uh, so I ran into, in the course of play, 
this happy synergy with those dark cards. And there's a Western set called, I think, the Sunset Striders. Uh, mm-hmm. And they can benefit from basically, quote unquote, killed cards. So I was finding some great synergy with some of those Western cards and this weird dark set, uh, which I think the uh, it's like uh, it's the domain of someone named Lord Hellbane. You guys are, are very imaginative. Yeah. With some of these. So <laughs> we, this- we like like a good CCG. We kind of wanted to come up with a few characters and then just reference them all over the place. So, um, but yeah, yeah. So the um, there's there's many ways there's many ways to victory. And um, I think one of the important things to note about the game is that you don't have to do really well in tournaments to win. It's not all about winning tournaments. Mm-hmm. A large portion of your victory points can come from turning in collections and can c- come from amassing a lot of money on the aftermarket and can also come from helping out friends with their different endeavors. Mm-hmm. So you really have a lot of a lot of options and you don't have to build a really a really um, technical or high powered deck in order to win the game. You can win the game during the deck building phase by doing these other these other tasks. And um, you know, players what I really like what I really like enjoyed about developing it is that archetypes tend to emerge. Players kind of latch onto a set and they say I want to build this and they and they can chase after it and Pretty much, uh, if you if you have a, a solid foundation to your deck, any concept can become a viable deck. And so, you know, you won't get um, all of this set together and find out that your deck is just not as good as somebody else's deck. Like any any deck can be completely playable and can win tournaments if you uh, if you build properly with the tools that you have available. And so, there's, um, there's also an yeah. element we found of when somebody gets a successful deck. The other players at the table immediately start thinking about specifically, well, how can I tear down this deck or how can I counter this deck? Um, so that if you're doing really well, uh, it's almost a catch-up mechanic. If you're doing really well, the people at the table are thinking, well, you know, what specific cards can I put in my deck to shut down whatever he's using to score his deck or whatever special card he's doing that suddenly gets him 40 points or something? Um, mm-hmm. There was yeah, just a, a in- lot of head-to-head clashing. Yeah, and in early versions of the game, we had situations where players would would tend to play the same deck without many, much modification. And so, what we wanted to do is put in controls that would, you know, that would encourage players, that would strongly encourage players to change their decks every time. Mm-hmm. Um, one of those is the uh, the metagame cards, and these are cards that come out onto the table and uh, show you a certain type or a certain element, and you just have to include one of those cards somewhere in your deck. So it's not a really Difficult challenge to do, but it's something that if you uh, if you ignore it, you're losing these free points that everyone else is getting, and so you kind of have to try to to shift your deck to adjust to these changing metagames. Um, another one is the uh, cards which we uh, we call like shooters in the office, and you they're things that you name a card, and if that card comes out, then you get a bunch of points and you get to to mess it up. And so if somebody has a you know, if you know somebody's about to play a specific card or they, you know, are building a deck that's too predictable, you can stock one of these cards in your deck and you can score a lot of points just by disrupting another player and taking them out of the lead. That's, yeah, that's exactly what we were doing last night is, okay, what's the name of that card you played? Uh, okay, I need to remember that because I've got the, you know, the, the Harry Potter parody card that specifically flushes one out of somebody's hand. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, let's talk then. So the metagame... Um, Ties into the timed phase you have, where you're, where everybody's doing deck building, uh, and there's a very curious dynamic um, that, that seems to me unique. I can't think of another game quite like this, 
where during the deck building phase, and this is timed, you've cited Galaxy Truckers as kind of a, a point of comparison. Uh, you have a certain amount of time to put your deck together. And in that same time, uh, you're also scoring a collection of cards uh, and you're buying and selling cards. So during that phase, uh, we were all very much, you know, heads down on the table. Uh, it was very quiet for the most part, uh, I think, because we were trying to learn the cards. Uh, it's quiet, but it's it's high energy when you know when you're when you're trying to figure out how to put all these pieces together. It, the the intensity certainly is there. It's definitely high energy, and just the thrill of uh, of the booster packs, which I want to talk about because you kind of changed how those work, and I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, but you have that 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 quiet. Uh, and for us, solitary uh, phase with the deck building, uh, I imagine as you know the cards better, people are more willing to propose trades or say, hey, I got this. Do you want it in your deck? You know, I'll give it to you if you give me one of your friendship cards. Um, like there would be more deal making, I think, once people know the game better. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so you, you typically to- on your second or third game, you'll see a lot more of that. And as players start to build collections, collections really start to force deal making between the players. Oh, I didn't even think of that, right? Because I was constantly like, "Well, I could, I got four cards. It'd be a, it's a shame I don't have a fifth card. There isn't one on the aftermarket. I suppose I could have asked somebody, you know, mm-hmm. do you have a, and- a two point construct to, you can sell me? Yeah, yeah." Yeah, and that starts to once you know your first game that you play, you really kind of focus on tournaments because it's that seems like it's the biggest portion of the game, and it is a very large portion of the game. But um, as you as you you know get better at the game and you sort of understand how cards work more immediately, you'll finish building your deck very quickly, and then you'll be like, well, what can I do with this extra time? Well, I can build a collection and make points that way, mm-hmm. and so then the hunt begins to find all of these. You know all of these rare cards that will finish out your collection, and so that's where a lot of the the wheeling and dealing and uh, aftermarket playing starts to, you know, and speculating on blind packs. All that starts to happen. Well, then this, so this, uh, it, the whole dynamic then for me, uh, I, I can't think of another game that's quite like this. It, it's very, like I said, sort of solitary. Everybody has their heads down. Um, there's there's going to be some interaction, but then you you go oh, and it's timed too, so there's a little bit of tension. Even though you specifically say in the rules, hey, if somebody needs another few minutes, that's fine. Give it to them. Uh, but then you go to the, the tournament phase where it's turn-based. Uh, you know, you're going around the table. It moves it moves fairly quickly, um, and it's supremely interactive. Uh, so, so a game of Millennium Blades is three back-and-forth phases, each of which feel very different. Um, and, and I'm curious – was it difficult to get that sort of pacing right? Um, what were the challenges of figuring out like how much time you should take for the deck building phase? Uh, tell me about the evolution of that that basic structure. Well, it, it's it's a game that's been like I've, I've I've mentioned on the Kickstarter. It takes it took us like two years to get to this point, and it's been about twenty different versions of the game between the beginning and the ending. And in the very first versions. Everything was turn-based, so you actually built your deck by by drafting in turn order from the center, taking one action to pick up a card and put it in your in your um, in your deck, and then after everybody ran out of money, then the game moved to a tournament phase and you would play cards one by one out of your ah. deck. So it was kind of this in and out type of um, type of ebb and flow. Um, that game took about seven hours to finish, and we said, "Was it just because well, the deck no- building was so slow? Like, it, it was that part of it? Is the deck building was just adding well, so much time?" It it was. I mean, it was just it was just the um, the 
you know the uh, the scope of choice, right? Because if you if you have five cards in your hand, you have to look at these five cards, figure out which one is best suited for your deck, and then draft it, and then pass that to the next player to okay. um, you know to to and he has to then evaluate. And this evaluation is changing every round because as your deck evolves, so um, so it's really um, you know. Well, yeah, so you weren't actually getting much more gameplay out of that. Um, actually, really, any more gameplay out of that. Um, so what we did in the in the modern, we said, well, you know, players are are going to be buying these cards and they're going to be selling these cards and they're going to be doing all this stuff. Um, why don't we just give them a bunch of cards and let them do it on their own time <laughs> and see how that works? And it actually works pretty well. It, you know, players will will be able to process information and the guy sitting to your left doesn't have to wait on you to right. start doing his processing. And so um, what you found like in the, in the old game uh, is that going around the table, each player took like 20 minutes um, to, you know, to do that, that turn-based play. And so if you're playing five players, then the deck building phase took about an hour and 40 minutes. Um, so, but if you let each player do their actions independently um, and you give them 20 minutes, everybody gets done in the same 20 minutes without any downtime. So it's a much more pleasant experience. I guess, yeah, that's sort of what I was getting at, is the pacing of this game really is fantastic in that everybody's always doing something or it always matters a lot what the other guy is doing at the table. Um, mm-hmm. we have very There's always few- a reason to keep focused and not too much downtime during the tournaments. Right, exactly, yeah. Um, so then during that uh, that timed phase, uh, you, you have a, a timer going. People are looking at their, their new cards. They're building their deck. They're setting up their collections. Uh, and then a meta, a card, a card for the metagame flips up. And you have a little bit more time. Then a card for the metagame flips up. And then that's kind of like last call. Uh, and you've got the smallest segment of time before a tournament starts. Uh, tell me about adjusting precisely how much time goes there. Cause it's been, I've seen, I've seen various sets of rules, which is either five minutes or seven minutes. And I get the sense that somewhere you guys are deciding, you know, down to the minute, what is the best amount of time uh, to make this phase last? It's it's true. It's it's a, a lot of games have just been us sitting there with timers and timing playtesters to see, and then uh. and then polling and saying and saying, do you feel like you had enough time to do everything you wanted to do? And uh, and the point where they say like almost that's that's the right point where it's it's just enough that. Like you got you got done just about everything you wanted to do, but you have something that you can resolve next round um, to to get you already hooked into the phase for the next round. So um, and we've we've done you know um, organizing the the things that you can do in the order in an order of priority. You know, finish your deck first, then work on your collection, then try and make some money, then help out your friends, um, because that's the order that those different uh, those different tasks will score you victory points. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so kind of giving players an idea of how to how to interact with this phase has been the toughest part because there's not a like you said there's not a lot of games out there like this, and you know a lot of games will you know they give you these actions and uh, it's pretty easy to figure out what action you know has what result. Whereas in this one you can take any of the actions you want as much as you want in the time limit, and so you know to uh, to understand how these actions are actually going to translate. Um, is uh, is a major you know a major um, issue in in teaching the game, and that's one reason that we built in the pre-release tournament rules, which is a tournament that you play before you even start deck building. Just to it's sort of a, a built-in tutorial so that players have to go through a tournament and understand how the the choices they make are going to actually affect them in the tournament round. And I kind and, of feel that's that's necessary. Like I would I, I don't think I would ever 
because knowing with my group and how I try to teach them games, uh, like to, to make someone build a deck before they've actually played and, and have seen the cards in action, uh, for me, I, it, you know, as soon as I'm introducing the game to someone, I would absolutely say you, you got to do that pre-release tournament. Yeah, it's it's not it's not playable until you've until you've seen a tournament in action, and it's in the same way that you can't build a deck for Magic Gathering until you've played a game of it. It's uh, you know, but um, but once you know that, there's no reason to do to do that. You should just jump straight into deck building because that's where it gets interesting. So then, uh, let me ask you one of the things that we ran into, uh, and I'm I'm certain that with repeated plays, this would address itself. But all of us were really gun shy uh, about spending our money. Um, mm-hmm. Because at the end, money is victory points. Uh, every four uh, millennium bucks, I think they're called, is a victory point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we would occasionally consider maybe buying something on the aftermarket where the card is face up and you know what you were getting. But for, for us on our first game, there was no way we were going to take a gamble spending money at the store where the, car is face, the card is face down and you don't know what you're getting. Uh, which is a shame because that's such an integral part of the CCG experience. You know, is paying money, opening the pack, scene. okay, what did I get? Um, so what will happen for us, Brad, uh, as we play more, that we're more willing to, to, to release our, our, our white-knuckled hold on every Millennium Buck we get? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, – you know, it, it depends, and it's, it depends on the way that you want to play the game because um, – just like a CCG, the player who spends more money has more options and can win tournaments better. And as much as it's worthwhile to to have a lot of money at the end of the game, winning first place in a tournament will get you far more points, and building a, a strong collection will get you far more points. Where, um, take for example, building an eight card collection is like twenty one victory points, and in order to get that many victory points, you'd have to hoard eighty four Millennium dollars. So it's um, you know, unless unless your master strategy is to in a in a game where you know top scores vary by about you know twenty points or so between first and second place, um, you know to unless your strategy is just to hoard millennium dollars and acquire eighty four of them over the course of the game, you should probably be working on those uh, on those set collections and on those tournament VPs where a tournament is worth like thirty or forty points mm-hmm. for it by the end of the game. Uh, you've also we didn't play with uh, the characters, um, which mm-hmm. I don't. I actually don't know if I, I forget. In the rules, is it set up that the are the are, is playing with the characters the default way or characters that- characters have have unique powers that uh, sort of help you focus your gameplay. Like if you wanted to focus on collecting, there's a character who is is better at acquiring rare cards. Um, if you want to focus on buying packs, there's a character who can look at the packs before he chooses whether he wants to buy them or not. Um, and so those characters let you kind of focus the strategy, but they're not necessary. You do pick um, a character for your player color, and right. so you get that character's cell markers and their friendship cards, but you don't really – you don't necessarily need to play with their power. That's right. just an extra option that uh, that players have at their disposal. Uh, and I also like the idea that the, the winners of each tournament, their character card gets put into play for everyone. You know, Everyone gets a copy of that character as – a card that can be played in, in a deck. Yeah. Yeah. When you when you win a tournament, you go pro, and your pro player card is a, a promotional card that all the other players at the table get and can choose to use in their decks if you want if they want to. Um, and that's that's actually one of the stretch goals for the campaign. That's uh, that's not included in the base game yet. Ah, but right. So hopefully, we can... will be pretty soon. Right. Good. Um, so uh, 
another thing that I think you make clear in the rules, uh, but is hard for – well, players are going to learn one way or the other. Uh, traditionally, one of the pitfalls of a CCG um, – because a CCG is in ways not just a type of gameplay, it's a business model, uh, is CCGs traditionally will have this inevitable power curve issue Mm -hmm. where in order to introduce uh, more rare or better cards, the game as a whole, the power curve ramps up uh, and they introduce more powerful cards. Uh, One of the things you do in Millennium Blades is the more expensive cards, uh, which kind of represents rarity, uh, aren't necessarily more powerful they're just far more specific well they're they're certainly more powerful but they're like linchpin cards that you have to build your whole deck around right right yeah right they're more powerful but they're they're also they 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 can only apply in specific situations uh so one of the things that happened to some of the players even though i tried to steer them away from this is they would go straight for a uh fusion for a gold card and they would be super excited. They would go, okay, I'm having to turn in nine cards to get this. It's a gold fusion card. You know, obviously it's going to be super great. They would pick it up and then realize, oh, there's no way I can use this in my deck uh, because, you know, they didn't have the specific cards for it. Uh, mm. Is it the more powerful cards and, and the more advanced cards, I should say, there's a lot of specificity in them rather than just a ramped up power curve. Yeah, and the, the Millennium Blade card, cards are very um... – are, are kind of uh, strictly balanced, and even more than the prototype that you have. Uh, a card tends to make about 20 rank points when you play it, and whereas the um, the core set cards, the the basic ones, they make about 15 uh, without even trying. And the you know the very high high end cards can make 30 or 40 points in a single card. But you have to be very particular about how you leverage that card in order to get all those points out of it. And if you don't leverage it correctly or you get disrupted, then you don't get anything out of it. So um, one of the concepts that comes up as you play the game more is deck vulnerability. And how am I – not only uh, what kind of combination am I building, but how am I protecting this combination that I'm going to build from the uh, from what other players are doing? How am I going to um, – to manage, you know, to manage this, and then you kind of have a true metagame where players are either playing more aggressive or more defensive based on the way that the rest of the table is building their decks. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, one of the things I really enjoyed was seeing the kind of the the, the metagame with accessories. You know, what two accessories you're going to bring? Uh, at first, the default accessory, everyone has a deck protector, which can prevent a card from being flipped. Uh, but as the game goes on. As people fold in new accessories with new abilities, uh, that changes. Um, and we even had the great little interplay with the uh, the duelist fashion ring. Uh, we uh, you did with, use that one? <laughs> we did use it, and it was funny. It started out with two of us having a fashion ring and the third player not having one. This was, of course, the third player who kept getting frustrated. Uh, and then at one point, I got a ring and an extra one, and I sold him mine i was like hey look what i got you know i'll give this to you for uh, four millennium dollars you know what the heck join the club you can have the ring and then i got rid of mine in my deck i didn't want it anymore and mm-hmm. besides i was the dark deck so i didn't mind flipping my cards yeah it's uh, a very it's a very 90s sort of thing where you have this this really cool accessory that everybody's got to have and if you don't have it you're just not so so for some background for um it's an accessory that attacks everybody who doesn't own a copy of that accessory 
And so uh, once you own one, you don't even have to bring it anymore. You can just own it and say, oh, I'm protected from this. But when you um, – but if if you're the only one that has one, you can use it to mess up everybody. And so the um, so so it's kind of the situation where like when one or two people at the table have it, like everybody's got to have one, and it's it's so great. And then as soon as like the third or fourth person gets it, we all just throw it in our closet and never look at it again. You know, I'm uh, so glad to hear you say that, Brad, because I didn't know if I wasn't reading it correctly. The card specifically says if you have it in your collection. Mm-hmm. And that's that's just an older that's just an older terminology for the cards that are not in play. Well, no, no, that term. makes perfect sense. I mean, because it's in your binder. I mean, you guys are pretty careful with the the. You obviously are using very specific uh, uh, words for different things. Um, you know, you you don't require that it's in your tableau, and that's actually not. I'm guessing not the box, not the accessories. But I wondered with the duelist fashion ring, I don't have to bring it along, and that seemed to be what the card implied. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying is it's clearly what the card intends. Uh, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and again, you know, it's terminology things that have been cleaned up through the process of of playtesting and prototyping. Um, but you know, text is very is usually in this phase usually pretty nonspecific. But I do think that's hilarious. That I don't even once I own the car, the the ring, I don't even have to bring it to the table. It's just yeah. Once you own one of these things, right. like like it's just it's just junk. So and, and it kind of I feel like that card more than more than any any other card in the deck kind of evokes the uh you know that that um that late nineties CCG uh you know um business model where where you got all this all this cool stuff and then um once everybody had one it was just on to the next thing. Yeah, it is kind of like yeah, the cool kids <laughs> are cool until everybody has one and then it doesn't matter, right? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, one of the things that uh, – I've seen a couple of drafts of the rules, and one of the things that you changed, um, and I, I think I know why you changed it, but I, I take issue with this change. Uh, so it used to be that booster packs were preassembled, uh, mm-hmm. and a booster pack is a set of cards that you're going to win – that you're going to receive after a tournament. It's going to mm-hmm. grow your collection. Um, <clears throat> so it used to be – the booster pack used to contain um, a couple basic cards, a few – a smaller number of – medium grade cards and then a couple high grade cards and then two of the really high level the master grade cards right and they were set like you de- you dealt out mm-hmm. x number from each set you know you had to assemble them before the game and before you shuffled all the cards together into the store right right that was, and, the, and they that even was were, the old way they worked and they were even supposed to go in little paper envelopes by the way which is mm-hmm. a, a great little uh it's a great tactile addition to the game you know card games and board games are already wonderfully tactile to actually open a paper envelope Pull out your cards. Super gratifying. But you changed this. Um, why and what did you change it to? So um, we so so the assembly of these these booster packs. While they were they were really fun, uh, it takes about twenty minutes, um, and that's twenty minutes before you start setting up anything else of the game. So uh, we found that for for players who were um, who were more casual and not deeply into the uh, this, you know, this board gaming uh, scene that uh, that this was just too much of a of a setup. That uh, that that and also that that level of setup was was unnecessary. That it didn't really improve the the experience of the game. Um, the you know the paper envelope is nice and having the cards is nice, but it doesn't uh, it didn't really affect the balance at all when we moved to our new our new paradigm. Um, and the third the third reason is is that. Um, 
having those 12 cards in that pack all come out at once was too much information for a player to process. We really needed to to break that up. So it used to be that the the deck building phase was one 20 minute block, and you got your entire uh, you got all your cards right up front, and you got all your money right up front, and you see the metagame and you and you play and you deck build, and so um, that uh, it kind of we found that 20 minutes is too long for players to sort of pace themselves. Mm-hmm. So what we did is we broke this phase up into two groups of seven minutes and seven minutes and three minutes. And the first seven minutes, we give you approximately five cards off the top of the deck, just random cards that, uh, you know, a set of, um, of cards whose values add up to about 21. Mm-hmm. And uh, we deal those off and we just, and those are the cards you get. And then um, after seven minutes, you get another pack of 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 twenty one dollars worth of cards off the top of the deck. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you um, and then you play with uh, with all that um, for another seven minutes. And then the final call for a tournament happens in three minutes. And by breaking that deck building phase up into those seven minute blocks, you kind of you uh, players can get an idea of what the pace of time is. You could say, okay, well, you know, it's first seven minutes. I've got time to, you know, to kind of figure out on a high level what I'm doing here. And then your second set of cards comes out and you're like, all right, I really need to nail this down. And then you hit the three minute mark and you're like, all right, what is my absolute final plan? Because now is the time. And, um, by kind of breaking it up into those segments, we found that players, that the pace of the game is much improved, that players, uh, can really sense the time that's going on and also sense how to prioritize and how to use that time. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the 20 minute block, um, you'd have about two players at the table that were, that were falling asleep by the end and you'd have two more players at the table that the buzzer would go off and they'd be like, whoa, I just got started. What happened? Right, right. So. Um, so breaking it up has certainly helped out a lot, and breaking the booster pack in half has um, has sort of increased the uh, the player's ability to deal with that information as it comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to say one important thing about the booster packs because the booster packs are um, are another innovation on top of like previous versions of the game. It used to be that all of the different sets that you were playing with and um, you know, you have these different booster types. You know, you have the the Harry Potter set and the, and the 007 set, and um, and all that sort of thing. The robot set. It used to be that each one of those sat in its own pile, and you could buy any kind of card you wanted. Oh. And um, and that was not a, it was not a, it well, uh, what would happen is players would pick their favorite pack, and they would just buy that pack exclusively. And so the way the store is structured now, everything's shuffled together and a tableau of cards comes out. It may contain the packs you want and it may not. You have to live with what's on the market. Um, and with the booster packs, um, because you can't choose what sets you want to buy, you're sort of at the whim of this uh, of the cards that come to you. Um, and that sense of, uh, of kind of receiving receiving cards that you don't have control over mm-hmm. uh forces you to find order in this chaos and that's where the real gameplay of millennium blades is is it's um you get this that you get all these cards and there's this chaotic system with all of these different effects and different types and elements and you have to figure out how to order how to how to create order from this chaos and, and that, um oh well, no, i was saying that that kind of uh captures the appeal of a CCG in general, you know, that mm-hmm. this idea of here's this chaos of all these different cards. I'm going to create my own little universe of order by making a deck. Uh, and then it has to survive the chaos of encountering another deck. 
that to mm-hmm. me is the appeal of CCGs is here's all this stuff, you know, impose your own patterns onto it, your own order, and then see how those patterns fare against other patterns. Yeah. And what we learned in the, in the, that, that sec, that setup where you had all the packs separated mm-hmm. was that if you don't, uh, if you don't force chaos on players, they won't, they won't accept it for themselves. They will, uh, they will, you know, like they will not naturally ex- like uh, seek out new types of cards. They will try and keep iterating on what they already have. And right. so, so using that booster pack, those random cards to force the player to to adapt to what they receive, was a big innovation during the development of the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, what were some other milestones for you guys in developing it as you went through these iterations? Like, uh, so obviously the going from turn based to real time deck building phase that must have been a great aha. Um, you know, controlling the trickle of new cards with the booster pack system. Uh, that must have been a, sort of a eureka moment. Uh, were there any other notable uh, evolutionary steps in Millennium Blades that uh, that really stick out in your mind? Well, in the the very in the very early versions of the game, it was a direct dueling game. So you had, um, you know, you built decks, and each of your decks had a, a champion character at the top of it, and got a bunch of supporting cards. And in this turn based game where you'd play turns, you're, you would be using your turns during the tournament phase to attack the other player's decks and knock them out. And whoever had the last surviving deck on the table was the winner of the tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this case, you'd kind of, you know, like you'd build your three favorite decks and you'd take them on, on tour and you would battle individual people to try and, uh, to try and win. And so one of the big innovations of the game was taking out that direct competition and making it a, a race instead of a duel where, um, each player is trying to push their own ranking points higher. Um, you don't necessarily need to destroy another player. You just have to outperform them on this ranking points track. And so converting the game from a from a battle into a race was a, a big innovation because it let you um, it let you sort of understand how your deck is going to perform in a void, which was really important during deck building because if you uh, if your deck if in a battle, your the way your deck's going to perform is very dependent on what the opponent brings to the table. Whereas in a race, um, how well you're going to perform, uh, you can gauge that in a void, and um, and that makes deck building much much more. Um, you know, our, our synthetic brains can uh, can understand that much better than trying to create a meta in a in a game that they've never that they've never you know battled in before. Sure. Right. Right. Yeah. Um. Uh, when, uh, so I'd like to talk a little bit, Brad, about your own, briefly, your own experience with CCGs. Uh, what is your background that led you to create a game about the experience of being a CCG player? Well, I, um, I started playing, uh, Magic the Gathering back in high school. I want to say it was like ninth grade or so, maybe eighth grade. Um, I, uh, play, I, I then took up Yu-Gi-Oh and Yu-Gi-Oh was my, uh, my my group's big game for for many years up until until about uh, about eleventh grade. Then we got back into magic in a big way. Um, now, in a big way, were you ever uh, like were you a, a, a Fulton suitcase type character? Like, did you? I I was I was not, and I say in a big way in that like um, like the school had to ban magic because we played it so much. Sure, um, but uh, the um, the. Uh, we we um, but we had you know we had this this group of friends and we'd all get together and go down to the card shop on Fridays and and you know and open packs and play draft tournaments and and it was it was all such great fun. Um, as I got uh, as I got 
you know, out of that, um, I started playing uh, more. I started playing more like more of the Friday Night Magic tournament type of events. Um, and then I got out of I got out of CCGs. I didn't have the time. I finally I was finally working a full job, and I had the money, but I didn't have the time anymore. <laughs> and so I didn't have uh, so I so I couldn't get out to Friday night and play Magic anymore with my friends. And um, was it was it a cold turkey thing, or was it just gradually fell away from it? Well, I I, I did a move at the time as well, mm-hmm. and so you know rather than getting into the scene at my local. You know my local place. I um, I actually got into board games instead mm-hmm. because because uh, I was starting to get into that industry. So I um, I went out for Thursday night board gaming, and at the end of that, you know, I didn't have really time to do the collectible games anymore. Um, but then uh, the Fantasy Flight Living Card game started coming out, and I played the the Warhammer game, and I played Netrunner, and I still play quite a bit of Netrunner. Um, and uh, then I got into um, into UFS, the uh, fighting card game, because you know we do BattleCon, our dueling board game. Um, so it seemed natural to see what else was out there and started playing UFS. Um, so I still no, play. I don't, I don't know UFS. Is that a straight uh, up CCG? Yes, yeah, a Universal Fighting System. It's a collectible card game that's based on fighting video games. So if you um, if you wanted to play characters like Street Fighter or oh, uh, Tekken okay. and stuff, yeah, right. that game has all those characters in it. Right. Um, so Each I still characters a deck, right? Like uh, they sell decks by character, or am I uh, you actually assemble your own fighter. So you start the character and you pick up different attacks and you pick different uh, like foundations, which are kind of like your training and backstory and stuff. And then you put all that together and you make a, a character deck. Okay, right. Um, and it's still it's still a pretty active game. It's run by a company called Jasco, um, and they they bought it from Fantasy Flight when Fantasy Flight stopped supporting collectible games. Okay. Um, but yeah, that uh, I still play Netrunner and I still play UFS, and I've actually gotten back into Magic through cubing. Um, but I was playing one of these um, the uh, the iOS trading card games. Which and, one? Um, oh gosh, one of the terrible Mobaji Skinner box games. Okay. Um, I had a friend who who played it, recommended it to me, so I I started playing it, and I was like like yes, I'm enjoying this, but I know I shouldn't be. Why Why do I enjoy you know, like like doing this repetitive mini game and then opening a pack at the end. Why why does that why does that capture me? Why does you know I'm I why am I doing all this work just so I can open this little pack of cards at the end of each you know of each turn? And um and I said, you know, this is this is really cool. I should make a game about the experience of you know of opening uh, of opening trading cards. And so Millennium Blades kind of evolved out of that idea of building a game that was about, you know, that was about opening booster packs. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what was it like going back to Magic? Like, do you still? Because I, I ask because I, I, I kind of, I personally feel Magic is kind of a, a terrible game. I mean, it's gotten better, but as far as CCGs go, and partly it's my exposure to Netrunner as well. Like the, the intricacy and the asymmetry of Netrunner has spoiled Magic for me. Like, well, you know, I I um I play both games quite a bit. I think that um I think that Magic is is elegant in its simplicity. Um, okay. you know, a like uh, each when you when you open when you pick it, pick up a Magic card, you know exactly what that card is going to do. Um, whereas a game like Netrunner, um, each individual card only exists in the scope of of the the of the deck. Like, um, you know, an ice is designed to block a runner from coming into a server, 
And um, in magic, you know, a creature just hits you in the face for two damage. And if it does other things, then then that's great too. But you can kind of understand immediately how a card's meant to be used from looking at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one of the reasons that I feel that uh, that Hearthstone is a really elegant game too, is because each card only does one thing, mm-hmm. and it does its one thing. And the the effects in Hearthstone are such that, and this is one way that Hearthstone exceeds magic. In that the effects are are so simple and so monolithic that each card has many different ways you can leverage it, and the timing that you would want to leverage a card, um, you know, there there are many ways to use a card. So in Magic, you put a card in your deck, you kind of it's going to do its thing when it comes out. Whereas in Hearthstone, you put a card in your deck, and it might be there as a safeguard against three or four different contingencies, or it might play into three or four different combos that you're trying to put together. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so I feel that in, the, in that way, Hearthstone is, is a much, uh, is a much more, um, a much more streamlined game and certainly a much more accessible game than magic. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of been my, my collectible game vice recently. So, um, is what, playing what Hearthstone Hearthstone? Is? yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. You and everybody else. Like, yeah, it's the, the productivity killed by Hearthstone has got to be staggering. Yeah. <laughs> it is, it is a very well-made game though. And, uh, I certainly, I, we could certainly all learn a few lessons in the card game, in, in card game design from playing some Hearthstone. Okay. Mm-hmm. Have you seen by any chance, uh, WizKids Dice Masters series? I have, I have. What is your feeling about the extra chaos added by, uh, dice? Uh, I feel like drawing cards from a deck is pretty chaotic, and I feel like rolling dice is pretty chaotic. So I feel like drawing dice from a bag and then rolling the dice is just, it's it's just a little there's no there's no order to find there there's just chaos okay um, so that's that's my feeling on dice masters but i mean you know i i have not played it extensively i've played enough to understand how the rules work and um i think that i would rather play quarriers just because i feel like uh like quarriers kind of gives the same feel in the uh you know without um without all the uh the work of building a deck together that's ultimately right. just going to be Rolled out to you on a D6. Right. The, uh, the, I think the difference between Quarriers, though, and the, uh, Dice Masters, you know, Dice Masters now has some Dungeons and Dragons, uh, some Marvel, and I think they've got DC stuff, uh, and Yu-Gi-Oh! Uh, it's got the theming on it. Um, and Dice Masters is more the traditional, uh, head-to-head direct conflict. Um, they play up the magic angle more. Yeah. Um, Quarriers is more, you know, it's a scoring angle. Kind of, you know, it's the difference between a scoring race. Race and battle, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I think, I mean, I think that they're, they're, they're both fine games for what they do. I'm, I'm just not a fan in general of, um, of dice games. And I actually read, uh, Reiner Nietzsche's book recently, um, you know, uh, Dice Games Properly Explained. And I think I kind of, I, I kind of understand why I don't like dice games. Explain <laughs> uh, why, because I find that fascinating. So is it, is Reiner Nietzsche's book about, is he justifying dice or, uh, well, no, you know, he says, um, you know, and he says it, the way he says it is, is very, is very good. He says a good dice game is like a good movie. You know, you, um, you get the, uh, you can accept that you can play along if you want, but you kind of are watching to see what happens more than you're participating. Okay. Um, but I knew I didn't like dice games very much. I, I never enjoyed zombie dice that much or, or Martian dice or, you know, uh, any of these, these dice games, but, uh, I didn't really know why. And then I read the book and, um, and he explained all, and he explains, you know, how to play all the games and how they, how all the different odds work and everything. And, um, 
what I what I learned is that dice games are are solved kind of upon you know upon as soon as you hit the table a dice game is already solved um, because you, you can know. sort of guess the average of what the numbers are going to be like like the the numbers will yeah. always average out and you, you can well, just sort of ride that that average yeah well it's like take a game like um, you know I think my favorite dice game is Roll Through the Ages so that'd be a right. poor example but take a game like Zombie Dice. Mm-hmm. Um, you uh, you know you roll some dice. You try and get a few brains. Um, if you get brains, then you can you know grab more dice and roll again. If you get feet, you can continue to roll those. And if you get shotgun blasts, then you have to keep those set aside, and that increases your risk. And on any given play, on any given turn in zombie dice, there is an absolute mathematically calculable best move, mm-hmm. and um, and that doesn't appeal to me. The uh, the idea that the game is is simply solved um, as it hits the table. There's there's no you know like I said at the beginning, I feel that gameplay exists between learning the rules and solving the rules, and so I want a game that will that I can play forever without being able to solve it. Whereas sure. a dice game is is immediately mathematically solvable. That's fascinating you put it that way because um, well for me because I've I've been into dice masters lately, and I feel that dice masters by combining the deck building aspect, you know, each die is basically a card and a deck builder. Uh, by combining the deck building aspect with that playing the odds of a dice game, uh, rather than being more chaos, uh, it's two different kinds of game approaches. It's kind of a peanut butter and chocolate thing. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I'm liking that contrast in Dice Masters. Uh, but also to hear you explain uh, what Rhino Kinesia's take on it, that it's like a movie. Uh mm-hmm. One of the things that I like, I find dice games are in a way more relaxing because I am absolved from, it's kind of not my responsibility if I lose or win. Uh, yeah. There no, is I, this kind of, I, I'm just along I, for the ride. I, a narrative is going to happen. The dice might screw me. It might be great. Uh, I'm just kind of absolved from responsibility in a way. Uh, yeah, and the and random draw of CCGs is, is, is similar as well when you shuffle your deck and you draw right. cards. Right. Um, and that's something we found too when we were designing Battlecon. Um, because it's a zero randomness game, uh, players feel a lot of agency when they, when they win or lose. Um, you feel like, you know, like, like I did this. And when you lose, that's a really terrible feeling. And when you win, it's a really great feeling. So I would say that, you know, you kind of, when you, when you're randomness, you kind of magnify that. Um, and I, I think that, uh, that playing, playing, you know, Magic and Hearthstone, um, again has kind of, it's kind of made me made me less uh, less against that level of randomness. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think I've read that uh, that that you know professional Hearthstone players win seventy five percent of the time, which means that you know um, even if even if somebody who's not great is going up against a pro player, they have a twenty five percent chance to win. Right, sure. That's a pretty high level of randomness in a competitive game. Like, I mean, I don't have a twenty five percent chance to beat. You know, to beat Shaquille O'Neal, and there's another right. '90s reference for you um, at basketball. Like, so, so it's certainly a um, a much more random playing field. Um, but you know, I haven't played I haven't played Dice Masters um, con- in constructed. I've only played you know the starter decks and uh, and kind of seen what the potential is there. But I haven't really delved it. So I'm probably not qualified to say that you know to say specifically whether the right. the game is great or not. Well, the last thing I want to do is get a, get a friend involved in another uh, uh, CCG time sink. So I won't sell you on Dice Masters. I, you know, in a way, the fewer collectible, even LCGs that that you that you play, the better. 
because I just, I just, you know, I'm, I presume you're the same way. I'm of the mindset that I'm, I'm either, uh, you know, in, I'm, I'm in all, all I'm, I'm in whole hog when I discover a game like this that I like. Uh, so you know, I, I, I don't feel, I feel like it would be, I feel like in an ideal world that players will, will pick up, you know, five or six games and will be, will be, you know, decent or good at those games and not, uh, you know, like you don't have to play everything, but if I, you know, if we sit down to play a game, to, to play card games for a day, that uh, that we could pick, you know, any of these different games. We could play Battle Comp, we could play Summoner Wars, we could play, you know, UFS or Magic or Yu-Gi-Oh or you know whatever Dice Masters. That that all, you know, even if my deck's not the greatest, I'll have something prepared. And um, we have sort of this. I I don't want to say I I don't know how how to put it. Like uh like, you know, card gamer lifestyle type thing where. You know, we play like the games that we play are kind of our identity in the same way that like the bands we listen to. Oh, sure, sure. Um, and that's sort of something that I've that I've put into Millennium Blades sort of subtly is that the the characters in this game live in a world where this is the way things are. Um, well, here's one of the things, and this brings it back around perfectly, Brad. Uh, like uh, w- with Dice Masters, and this is what I'm currently going through is. I have this, I, you know, I've, I bought a whole bunch of Dice Masters packs and I've got, you know, I'm happy with my collection. I have a bunch of them. Uh, I can pretty much make, with a few exceptions, any kind of, uh, deck that I want. Um, but for me to introduce Dice Masters to someone, they have to play my decks. Like, if they don't have the game already, I have to be, okay, let me show you Dice Masters. Uh, you know, here's a deck with, uh, dragons and elves that I made. You play this and I'm gonna play my undead deck. Um, and that my goal there is to them get to get them to like the game enough to buy and create their own decks. Um, mm-hmm. There's kind of this, uh, it's almost like a pyramid scheme, like multi-level marketing. Like look <laughs> at this, look at this world that I'm in. Let me seduce you into this world so that you buy your own and that you are now playing and con- this game with me, where it's about your deck construction versus my deck construction. Mm-hmm. Because and as long as we're both using the wonderful. decks that I've made, but if we're using the decks that I've made, I'm kind of missing out on part of the experience. Um, mm-hmm. Well, you're missing out. Like if 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 we're both using the decks that you've made, um, we're both missing out on part of the experience. I'm missing right, out on the right. experience of of creating my own my own construction, my own you know um, my own identity here through this game, and you're missing out on experiencing the you know, the, the identity that I would create through my construction. Exactly. Exactly. And so, so, so yeah, so I, I like this idea where card games are, are not just, are not just a, um, you know, a hobby, but also sort of a self-expression that we have access to. And, um, you know, like with magic, I don't play competitively anymore, but I have, you know, my, my three old, you know, legacy type decks that are not at all competitive, but they, they do kind of have fun mechanics. And I feel like it's, you know, like it's almost like if we sit down to play a game of magic that you could understand me a little better by seeing the kind of deck that I play and how it right. plays out. Right. Um, and I feel like that's one of the, the really neat things about magic. Or alternatively, um, we could play Millennium Blades. And this is the beauty of it is it, even though this is just my copy of Millennium Blades, you know, I don't have to get my friends to buy a copy of Millennium Blades. And as much as the, uh, the model of LCGs is trying to ease up on the burden of, of entry into a CCG. You know, with Netrunner, there's still that same idea. Netrunner is an LCG, but if I want to fully experience it, if I want my friend to fully experience it, 
he's got to buy it, and I've got to buy There's, it. Yeah, you're about 600 cards deep now, and yeah. you know, unless somebody goes all in, it's still a lot of backlog to cover. Well, yeah. And alternatively – oh, go yeah. ahead. Sorry. Well, that is one of the, the great things about Millennium Blades is that exactly. right. archetypes archetypes do emerge. You find there's one player who who will trade all nine of their starter cards and get that one gold promo and build their entire deck around it. And he and you know if they know what they're what they're doing, if they play that uh, successfully, they can be just as successful as a player who you know buys a lot of the the, the low grade cards and tries to build a very you know, a very um, you know uh, safe combo heavy deck, or a player who buys a couple of the you know the master cards and tries to build a you know a very specific long range type of deck. So um, you know, or the player who just tries to sell everything that they can just to amass vast hordes of wealth and uh, and score money at the end. Like every player can kind of do the game the way that they want to. And you know, um, we have one one player who. Like he always plays the uh, the Sentai team, like the Power Rangers set, whenever it's in play. And even if it's not like the main of his deck, main part of his deck, he's always going to try and grab those cards and put them in somehow because he feels kind of an affinity for them. Mm-hmm. And so you do get a lot of player personality expressed through the decks, and that's one of the things that I I've really enjoyed in developing and in playing the game. And and that's its, uh, for me its main appeal is it's that whole experience of. You know, I don't have to seduce my friends into buying their own copy of it. You know, in this one box that we that one of us owns, we we create that same experience without having to each own our own copy of it, uh, and to each make it a lifestyle where we go away and we build our decks and then we come back and, and we play them together. Um, mm-hmm. Just sit down at the table one evening uh, and, and create that that dynamic right there. So, so uh, that's Brad, what, uh, yeah, that's what I hope to capture. So uh, you're currently on Kickstarter. Uh, what, uh, of course, it's easy enough to find Millennium Blades at Kickstarter. Uh, what is the base support level to own the game? Uh, it's fifty dollars to get the base game, mm-hmm. uh, and the game comes with uh, you know about five hundred cards. So it's about the size of Dominion, um, but it also comes with player boards and punch tokens and you know and a big uh, full color rulebook and all that stuff. So it's got a little more component wise than Dominion, but a similar number of cards. The uh, the uh, we at um, a certain stretch goal at $100,000, we're um, committing to build an expansion for the game. And the expansion is just more cards, kind of just like a Dominion expansion box. It's going to be a bunch more cards that you can rotate in to increase the variety of the game. But certainly you can play the entire game off of that base pledge tier. And if people uh, need a, uh, any proof that you guys know what you're doing, you also have uh, Argent, which uh, is your most recent game. Before then, you have the Battlecon series and uh, Pixel Tactics. Uh, so I encourage folks to check out Level 99's games. Uh, go to Kickstarter, check out Millennium Blades. Uh, one of the highest praises I can offer you, Brad, is uh, there's nothing else quite like it. And there's not many, uh, board games or card games you can say that about these days. So. Well, thank you. I appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with me about it then. Yeah, and thank you so much. Uh, best of luck with the rest of the campaign. I have no doubt you guys are, are gonna do great. And I guess congratulations are in order. Um, and thanks so much for talking to me today, Brad. Yeah, thanks a bunch, Tom. 